Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. This week, we're re-releasing an Instagram Live conversation recorded in June 2020. It's one of my very favorite conversations of all time with Ashley Marie Preston, who has since become a very, very, like, close, 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 close friend of mine who I love so much, where I get to ask her, what does pride mean to you? Hi, everyone. We are going to have a gorgeous pride conversation with Ashley Marie Preston. So, Ashley Marie Preston, if you've been... Uh, not had the pleasure to know who she is. She is an award-winning media personality, commentator, award-winning journalist. She also was the first open-out trans woman to run for state office. And also, uh, there's like one other gorgeous thing that you are, besides my friend and person who I just look up to so much and I'm so excited to see on this gorgeous morning. Um, but also you started um, You Are Essential, which is your new organization, yeah. which is so important. And we're going to talk about all of it. But first of all, coming from the like West Coast at nine in the morning, giving me all this glamour. Oh, all what? This- what glamour? Listen, I spend most of my day in a scarf and I take that scarf off and I flip her up and I go, and these earrings are carrying all the weight, trust me. <laughs> no, those shells between their part two, honey. Those are so pretty. I'm living for this adornment of shell. Thank you. So this is basically kind of what I wanted to kind of ask you about today on this gorgeous live, which is kind of what we were texting about yesterday. We, I got to really meet you and get to know you uh, a few weeks ago when we did the New York City Pride uh, kind of virtual fireside chat. And since then, I've gotten to know you more like behind the scenes, which has been such a, such a pleasure. But I, I know that for so many people... Uh, this pride, it's like, we want to celebrate and and celebration is gorgeous and it's fun. Comma, when there is this deluge of things to process as we head into an election, as we head into one of the most pivotal times in our country's history, and every day we turn around, we've lost someone. We have a new, a new law, a new thing coming in to kind of like, just, I feel like it can just take the wind out of a sail. And there's so much that just takes such a weight of energy to process. And I think that for so many people that are uh, new to that, to this aspect of like, that have awakened in this last month to being like, wanting to be on the front lines and wanting to be on the fight. It's like, this isn't like a three week thing. If you thought that things were gonna go back to a normal in three or four weeks, like first of all, like what was normal? And second of all, no. So it's like, I feel like you are someone who has been in this fight and has been talking about this since it was way before mainstream, way before people were like talking about it to the level which, with which we are now. And I feel like you have, I don't think I've ever heard like activism fatigue come out of your mouth. Like you, like you have, you approach this with such joy and you're able to process everything that happens. Um, and you still have this joy. And I just want to, how do you do that? And how can, how can people get, maintain this pride energy 365 years or 365 days a year? Um, I think for me, it's the understanding that joy is an act of resistance. It truly, 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 truly is. Like when you think about what oppression is meant to do, it's meant to break you from the inside out. And so it's meant to crush your dreams, your hopes, your aspirations, any vision of what your future can be. It's meant to destroy you. Um, just 
every aspect of who you are. And so the way that you combat that is by reminding yourself constantly who you are, surrounding yourself around others who are willing to pour that light into you. And then also understanding that it's a game of divide and conquer. And it's also meant to divide or conquer your sense of self. And so just reminding yourself of who you are, what you're about, understanding how gaslighting works, understanding that the objective of gaslighting and dismissing the realities of what's happening to you, it's meant to create a sense of psychological warfare. Knowing that joy has to be the core of my being. It has to be my ultimate objective. So I think gaslighting is such an important phrase to understand. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so hard for people. Uh, can you just give us, like, what is gaslighting? So gaslighting actually uh, comes from this, like, uh, play from, like, the late 1800s, I think. And they, like, maybe made a movie about it in the early 1900s. And it was about this man. Um, the movie was called Gaslight. And it was about this man who, uh, I guess he couldn't stand his wife and he wanted to, like, get rid of her. But I guess, like... Instead of just killing her and oftener, you know, like pulling like a Lizzie Borden or something. It's not funny, but the way that you're recapping the story, just, I'm sorry. Yeah. So he basically just decided that he was just going to mess with her mind and make her go insane so that he could get rid of her that way. And so he would do things like move things in the house and then make her like second guess like, wait a minute that wasn't there or like i thought i heard this did you hear this oh i didn't hear anything he would like dim the light this is back when they had like gas lamps and they would dim the light it would flicker it would just do these patterns against the wall things that would literally drive her insane and so fast forward gaslighting became a term to describe the way that our government our institutions and structures that participate in anti-blackness or forms of bigotry they play these tricks on us to make us second guess what we're really seeing, what we're really hearing. And eventually it's meant to break you down from the inside, like I mentioned earlier, so much so that you don't have enough stamina to continue the fight. So that's gaslighting. Ugh. I don't like that term, but I do feel like I like you explaining things, like you are such a good explainer, natural culture good explainer. So too academic, I feel. I think that's the other disconnect and missed opportunity. Don't get me wrong, like, I will hop on CNN and give them very much Elwood's Harvard campus, you know, whatever. But the thing is that that's not really going to reach people. So when we talk about these issues, we have to make it accessible for everybody. Yeah, we do. So speaking of accessibility for everyone, I feel like there is such a, um, I, I guess I want to be well, I don't guess I want to be, I'm going to be really transparent. So I feel like I kind of had my own experience with coming to terms with like what my complicity and like role and privilege was in like 2016 and 17, when I started hearing about some of these, some of the, what these ideas were. And I had such a knee jerk reaction to it in such a classic, like Karen sort of way, like um, just really feeling like, I'm like, I knew these terms and I knew that these sort of things happen and we do need to change our education. But like, it just, it, like, I was very much one of those people that was like, if you just explained it like more calm, like, I feel like I would be able to have heard it better. And it really took me like mm -hmm. eight months of that before I finally realized I was like, what if every single time I see something on the news 
that affects me as a queer person was like because of the color of my skin and in equal to the way that I feel like when I see queer people attacked, but like the way that black people are attacked. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, I would be like literally breaking chairs out the window. Like I, and then I was like, Oh my God. Like I like, and then that's when I kind of realized what the privilege really was of like, you cannot, you cannot, you are not allowed to tell people that are actively being oppressed how to express themselves in, in their oppression, however they want to come at it. That is, and it is only my job to support and elevate. But I, but it, it, it but I had such a like uncomfortable reaction for months and months. I really had, like, I mean, there was people I unfollowed on Instagram that were talking about this sort of things, like in 16, 17, like over time before I was like, before I really realized like by myself, like, you know what it was? Cause, but that is, it's not meant to be comfortable. And you talk about that a lot. Like how much comfort are you willing to sacrifice? And it's not, it's literally not meant to be comfortable. Yeah. So when dealing with that, I guess, I just feel like there's such a knee jerk reaction to, for people to like dismiss and to like, not give people space to like find find the truth. And I feel like you have been dealing with this or, I mean, I feel like you've dealt with like the spectrum of everybody in in your time, like in the public, like in all the things that you've done, like you've run for office, you've been the editor in chief of magazine, like you've done it all. So like, I feel like you've really dealt with the spectrum of Karen's this. And so how, for people that are newly into this thing, like that are learning and really trying to get people like into it and be like, no, 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 come on. This is really messed up. You need to know about that. And then like, you're talking to like, you know, some version of a Karen who's like, maybe like a member of your family or like maybe just like some nightmare. Like I'm getting to the, the question. I swear to God, is it better to just like cut them off and talk to people who are willing and then let them come around on their own? Or do you like try to talk to people? Um, it's a little bit of all of the above, right? Like there are some people that, um, they subscribe to the epistemology of ignorance, which I've talked about that before. And what that means for those who may not know is those people who aggressively and militantly bypass their cultural analysis of what's happening with black people, uh, trans people, LGBTQ folks, all of that, because they're afraid that if you hold up a mirror to them, they'll see themselves in a way that disrupts their delusion of what it means to be a good person. So no matter what you say to those individuals, they're never going to sign on to anything that you're saying. However, I have made a a lot of amazing friends now who um, were of the variety of the 2017 JBN variety who were kind of just like, you know, why don't you just be positive and this and it's all light and we all, you know, love is love. And I think that I have this gift. And again, I would not um, expect this from every uh, Black person or a person who's been historically marginalized in America. It's not everyone's calling, but I have an ability to hold people accountable and hold them at the same time. So I truly understand that, again, going back to white supremacy and divide and conquer, the objective is to get people at odds with one another. And so one of the things that I know is that the biggest stab, like the biggest stab to white supremacy, the biggest slash to its throat is when you can convince another white person uh, or a white person to betray white supremacy. That is, it becomes weak and like, it's literally on its deathbed when you can do that. And so I am able to tell people the truth 
you know, unapologetically, but I'm also able to explain that you're a part of a system. So when we talk about white supremacy, even, we're not attempting to character assassinate. We're not attempting to, you know, um, you know, stain your hands with blood or pit anything on you. What we're saying is, is that there's this inherent racism that you were born into because you benefit from the system, whether you ask for it or not. No one is judging you for not understanding inherent racism. You're only being judged when you refuse the education and the call to help dismantle those systems. And for some reason, I think I'm able to get through to people in that way because I really do think that when people hear whiteness, it's almost like it's become like a derogatory word. So like white, like, oh my God, it's not about color. I don't see it. It's like, but that's the problem. If you don't see color, you don't see the way that these systems are operating and someone else's liberation feels like oppression to you when you've been brought up and rooted in privilege. And the girls aren't ready for that. They don't expect that because they think that it's just going to be like, you did. And I even talk about the ways in which there was this phase that I had to go through. Again, I don't subscribe to these angry Black woman tropes. Like you said, we need to be able to express ourselves how we see fit. Um, however, um, I do also come from a place of where I've just been emotionally detached from some of this stuff. So just being matter of fact about my style of communication. Yeah. I feel like I... Okay, there's like a few things there. On the last thing, it's like, I feel my own version of uh, non-binary queer empathy with that because when you see so many people being, you do get a numbness to it because it's like if you took in every single one, you couldn't keep going. And like, you can't keep the passion and you can't keep the energy if like you, because I feel like for empathetic and creative people, it's very like, it can just be, it is, it's hurtful, and but whatever. But back to the first thing of um, how we deal with the, the epistemology of ignorance. And so basically I feel like what's happening with that is, is that, because that was my thing. Like, I didn't want to believe that, like, I, I remember I interviewed W. Kamau Bell on Getting Curious, like in, in the first season, and he was telling me about what white privilege was. And I was like, but I hate that. I was like, I don't want to have white privilege. Like, and he was like, that's like Superman saying that they don't want to use their superpowers because like his, and so, it, I, basically what I was saying back then is like, I don't want to get, I don't want to be comfortable with this idea of like that there's this whole thing existing like as we speak. And I think that that mass delusion on like, but it's like on a national scale, right? And I think that for me, a lot of where it started was is, that, is in education. Like it is literally back in school. Like we don't learn about this stuff correctly in school. Like what happened in the United States in from its inception all the way to now is it's really brutal but when you think about some of the things that happen we do not learn that in school and we have to learn that so early and we have to be so just matter of fact about the things that really happen and i think that that's until like right now we have like betsy devos who is like the head of the education system in the united states one thing i learned on on getting curious too is like how actually in manhattan like they have some of the most segregated schools in manhattan than they do in the whole country. And that's all money. So yeah, usually that's all. <laughs> you just, you don't think that like coming from like, you know, being like a rural Midwestern queen, you just don't like myself, like you just don't think, you think that like on the coast, like everyone gets it and that, you know, it's, but it's, it, th so I guess it's really just this idea of like having to hold up the mirror and like, oh, I'm a part of this thing. It's, 
that that thing on an individual level is actually spread across the entire country. And it's an actual intersectional feeling because a lot of people have, a, I mean, women can have a role in this. Like lots of different people have a role in, in kind of keeping these systems of oppression really like in the cycle. I mean, obviously more white people, but there is an intersectional, an intersectionalness to like the willing ignorance. And so, you know, does that, is that, I guess. No, I understand. And I was just thinking about, we were talking about the bigger cities, like, oh my gosh, it's so shocking that like big cities aren't, that they're so segregated. And I think that the biggest grift that I've seen in a long time in our social politics are in big cities because they use capitalism as a shield to, um, you know, hide their, uh, their racism and sexism and transphobia, homophobia, all of that, because it's marketable. It's marketable in big cities. So the difference is that in these other places where it's a smaller town, it's more rural, you know, uh, there's like Bible scriptures um, made out of corn and fields that stretch for miles long. And like those places, you know what I mean? They don't, there's no need for us. You know what I mean? So they can just say what they feel. But in the bigger cities like New York and LA, and they're making money off of it. So it's like also understanding that that's when we get into, which I don't want to go too far off track, but when we get into visibility as this remedy, visibility isn't always the remedy. Visibility is sometimes the vehicle through which they exploit us. Mm. You know? Mm. Mm. So one thing I was thinking about last night when uh, I was like, I follow this one guy on Instagram. He was talking about this like super duper fucking like all lives matter, like white gay porn guy. And then I like went into this like netherworld of gay men who don't, white gay men who don't understand. And what a lot of them were saying, it, it, it's bringing me, I'm making a point, it's bringing me back to the education because so many of them just like, literally like the, the facts are so wrong, like not even close to, and they're like, you know, say like some stuff like, oh, well, some of these things happened 400 years ago. That's one that really pisses me off because actually, no, uh, it was less than like 140 years ago. Like when, you know, it's like 1865, that was like 180 years or something. I can't, I'm, I'm, like I said in prayer, I'm like, I'm not good at math, but when you think about that black women did not have the full on right to vote until the Voting Rights Act of 1965, but between the gym, between after slavery and then the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which has now been completely gutted in 2013, you had polling taxes, you had literacy taxes. There was like, like white people like made it so hard and disenfranchised so many people, like black people specifically and people living in poverty um, that could not vote. And our country was established on the idea of no taxation without representation. That's like, it goes back to the idea of like voting and being represented and black people and people of color and women were never represented in this country as a, as a right to vote until like literally in the last, like in all of our life, to, like it's, it's the level of time. And, and then when you think about the fact that like all of these laws were voted and made without people's voices and these laws were governing people. So to say that these are things that happened 400 years ago and you don't bear responsibility in that is so incorrect. And if we don't teach people history in schools, that's gaslighting though. Education is important, but that's gaslighting at work. We still have black men hanging from trees in 2020. We had three black men who were found hanging from trees a couple of weeks ago and they were tied to Ferguson. 
to that big moment in Ferguson. They were activists and tied to activism. So when people come like that, that's, yeah, see, those are the things that, like, we're talking about on Black Twitter and other places and in the news, and they're mentioning it briefly, but they've literally found people hanging from trees. Y'all can Google it for those who are, are tuned in. They had, that they had connections to be, to activism. And yeah, they, they most of the activists, some of the prominent activists or their children, they've been found either hanging from trees or they've been shot and burned up in their cars. And there is this, like, it's clear as day out in the open. And so when I'm having these conversations with people about, like, timelines and all of this, it's like, I think, I love what Jane Elliott did. For those who don't know, Jane Elliott is an um, an, an anti-racist activist. Um, and the term anti-racism uh, came from uh, Angela Davis when she was um, in an interview. She said, in a racist society, it's not enough to be non-racist. We must be anti-racist, which non-racism just says there's nothing wrong with me. I'm just this th- this uh, blot of light that's just hovering over this dark world. And it, it doesn't assume any responsibility for dismantling anti-Blackness. And so Jane Elliott Um, is a white woman who would have these huge classes at universities and on campus. And she did this exercise one time and she said, if you would like to be treated like a black person uh, in America, please stand up. And so there's a room of like hundreds of white students and no one stood up. She said, maybe you didn't hear me. If you would like to be treated in the way that a black person in America is treated, please stand up. No one stood up. And so she concluded in that moment, if you know at your core that you would never want to be treated the way that a Black person is treated in America, how could you stand by and allow others to be treated that way? And so at every, I feel at every white person's core, if they're being um, completely honest with themselves, you know that black people, brown people are seen as um, as inferior. You know that when you grow up, you see white Barbies, you see, um, you know, these like models on TV and magazines. You see that the girl that all the guys want in the movie, she's either white or she's uh, very Eurocentric. You know what I mean? And so the thing is that, again, that's part of the epistemology of ignorance at work is that blocking of these truths that we know like you've never even when we say black lives matter we're not saying that other lives don't we're saying that black lives matter too because we live in a society that hasn't reflected that to us you know even the fact that we're just getting a black president after all this time even the fact that we're just getting some of these like um, these like historical moments, even though most of the events, uh, the inventions like the stoplight and all these other things, they were invented by black people, and yet America has always centered white people. And so, I love Jane Elliott for that because yeah. that's really what it's about. It's about recognizing that. No one is shaming you for your whiteness or no one is shaming you for being born into inherent racism. They're just asking you to be intentional about dismantling these systems. And if you're pretending that it doesn't exist, it's because you're afraid that you will find out truths that you can't look away from. So, I think, you know, at the beginning I said of this conversation, like, 
how do we keep going and keep this energy 365 days a year? And then it's like, well, if y'all are still here and listening to this and like you fuck, then you know, then this is 30 minutes of processing of all this stuff going on. Right. So this is the thing. I love that you brought up uh, momentum. And so what I have found, I think that this is probably in my lifetime, the third or fourth movement major movement that I've seen try to uh, take off. And the thing that happens is that people get bored and they get distracted and they're ready to move on to the next thing. And so what I want to identify and name is that there's a certain type of people. So let me just say this. When we talk about self-care, I see people use self-care as a form of escapism. Okay. And self-care should remedy fatigue associated with dismantling systems of oppression around the clock. It shouldn't be a shield to avoid being enlisted into fighting anti-Blackness. So there's a difference between self-care and self-caring, K-A-R-E-N. So self-caring is the lip-pumping aficionado slash Instagram model who would rather blog about Birkin bags, pumpkin spice lattes, hashtagable moments in Joshua Tree, and Kundalini Yoga retreats off the coast of Malibu. Self-caring is probably the most dangerous ones of them all because when we think about, I like that you separated bigotry and hate because sometimes hate is informed or bigotry is informed by hate, but it isn't always at the core. Self-care is motivated by feelings of fear and inadequacy. And so when we think about self-caring and the way that she shows up, she's that shiny object that society uses to divert its focus away from the ghastly presence of anti-Blackness in America. And so people look to self-caring as an excuse or as a justification for why they aren't plugging in and really putting it all on the line. And so that has been in my honest observation, what has continued to be an impediment to most major movements and their ability to thrive and grow is society's boredom and distraction and willingness to look over here, look over there, look for anything except for what's in front of them, which is the social responsibility to dismantle those systems instead of continuously benefiting from them. And so what happens is that self-caring, you know, gets that text from her ex you know, white supremacy and white supremacy is on the other, the, the other end of the line. Like, you know what, honey, we're both tired. We're exhausted. It's late. I'm sure we both said things that we really didn't mean. Just come home. And self-care is the Uber that drops her off on white supremacy's doorstep. And so we have to, if we're ever going to keep up this momentum around Black rights, uh, brown, indigenous, immigrant, undocumented, disabled, reproductive rights, LGBTQ rights, all of these um, different uh, communities who've been historically oppressed, we have to be consistent. We have to be consistent. And the other piece really quickly is understanding that they will use your rights and the thing that you want the most to make you complicit in the oppression of other people. It's a game of whack-a-mole. So let me give you an example. We know that when marriage equality 
became a thing when they signed it into the law of the land, that same session they voted, they gutted the Voting Rights Act, which we know that that disproportionately impacts Black Americans. In the same way, when they um, added um, LGBTQ workplace protections as an extension of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, we know that in that same session, they refused to hear cases and arguments about qualified immunity, which would hold corrupt law enforcement accountable for the egregious things that they're doing in communities all across America. No one under no one heard that because it was drowned out by victory and celebration of the LGBT community's win. Then they were like, okay, they're really getting carried away with this Black Lives Matter stuff, so we have to make sure that we keep people divided and uh, disconnected. So then they were like, oh, congratulations, DACA. I marched for DACA, um, for the protection of DACA and Dreamers for three years. I was happy about that win. I also saw what they did. And then we know that now in Louisiana, they're like, you know what? We're squashing this whole abortion ban thing. We're going to. So look at what they did in a couple of weeks. They just essentially turned the LGBTQ community the immigrant community and dreamers and probably feminists who are into like reproductive rights and everyone else who supports reproductive rights against black people by giving them this temporary win so that they would become disengaged from the larger movement. Because if we're being honest with ourselves, most of the people that are, that are screaming black lives matter in some sense have been made to feel that theirs haven't either. And so they know that by riding the coattails of this momentum and this wave, that when the most vulnerable among us are liberated, everyone will be. And so, but if you give them their rights, it's like a game of whack-a-mole. So we come up for air, you hit us over the head, they come up. Hit them over the head, they go down, they come up. But what would happen if all the moles rose at one time? And so when we get these wins, we have to make sure that we're not distracted because right now it's not a win. You're leasing your dignity. You don't even own your dignity. You're renting your dignity. And so true dignity and freedom looks like not only fighting for your own interest and cause, but it looks like showing up for everyone else because united is the only way that we're ever going to completely defeat white supremacy. Otherwise, we're just buying time. And that's, okay, so one one thing that, yes, and the other thing that comes up for me in hearing that is the law of scarcity versus the law of abundance. And I think that white supremacy and this, th- like the whole thing that this rests upon is the idea that like, if everyone gets their rights, if everyone gets, fr- if everyone really gets free, if everything really gets even Steven, so that everyone can thrive, then that takes away from the white people. There is enough for everyone to really thrive. And and that kind of, to me, supports the whole idea of like, no one's really truly free until everyone's free. And I could not agree anymore about the idea that here the Supreme Court has pacified the LGBTQ community in a certain way. They've helped, you know, abortion rights in a certain way. And that reminds me of what Masha Gessen told me on Getting Curious a few weeks ago, which is when... Uh, it's in terms of like when you're looking for like an, uh, the rule of an autocracy, do not be fooled by acts, like by normal acts of humanity, right? <laughs> like you should not, like, like, of course we shouldn't be fucking fired for being gay and trans. Of course there shouldn't be these outrageous encroachments on abortion. That's the law of the land. Like, don't be fooled by these things that are normal 
These, this is how it should be. Like, there's a separation of church and state. You shouldn't have gay and trans people getting fired for that. You shouldn't have these states like Louisiana and Texas and states in the South constantly taking away people's rights to, 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 to produce to, for reproductive rights. Do not be fooled by these normal acts. But in, in that same time, we've enabled the police. And the system that is supposed to regulate the police, which is the, you know, well, the Supreme Court's not meant to regulate the police, but the, the court is supposed to strike down stuff that is unconstitutional. And where is it that in our Constitution, it says that there is a force of people who are allowed to just go around killing people? Like, like that, that just- what they were tasked with doing, even that, going back to the education piece, the police were slave catchers. That was what their role was in American history. After slaves were freed temporarily, whatever free is very subjective under that context. But when slaves were freed, um, white people were terrified that they were about to get the clap back of a century. And so they had slave catchers at that time that were responsible for um, catching slaves committing crimes and then they were sentenced to chain gangs which is where the prison industrial complex was born they were called chain gangs and so they were still doing work for free doing all this labor essentially they were still slaves those families who were the um who enlisted the slave catchers later became dynasties which later became corporations law enforcement went through a major rebrand, got shiny uniforms, you know, all these uh, different things. And then those corporations, who many people look at as apolitical, they've bought the government. The government is bought and paid for. And so when you look at, which is why people care more about the destruction of property than why people are protesting and the fact that they're conflating protesters with looters and all of this, they've completely made it clear that capitalism is of the utmost importance. And so police officers are doing what they were created to do, which is inflict uh, state-sponsored terrorism on black and brown communities, which would keep them from from latching on to like white wealth and privilege and all these other things. So these systems that were, that the country was established on really never went away. They've only just changed this whole time. So I feel like earlier, the, the self-caring is one of the funniest things I've ever heard, but great way to explain it, yes. Um, but I think your organization is a really good, uh, that is self-care. Like that is, that is like you are caring, because right? Or because right? Like you are essential, honey. Like I feel like that's, because I bet you probably do get all sorts of like, you know, gorgeous brain chemicals from helping dismantle white supremacy and helping people like that probably creates some great endorphins um, and helps you help people. And you, and you basically created your essential, like that started as in a response to coronavirus, correct? Yeah. Cause what it was is I'm one of those girls, like I'm giving you very much Oprah Winfrey from color purple. Like all my life I had to fight all my life. I done had to fight. And so the thing is, you know, she loves a good scrapple, you know, she loves the, but I'm someone who has asthma and respiratory complications. And we know that even from Chicago, when we saw that report that said 70% of the COVID-related deaths were Black people, we know that there are so many things that would make me disproportionately uh, prone to 
contracting COVID-19. And so I was like, if I'm not here, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, how am I helping other people if I'm not even here to help myself? And so I had to make a very difficult decision and take quarantine seriously. Like I've been quarantining since March 13th. I only went out one time and that was like maybe two weeks ago. And it was like really quick split lickety boom and I was back home. And so the thing is that I was having to get creative about the ways in which I was able to contribute because I believe everyone has something, whether you're able-bodied, disabled, whether you're someone who's connected, who's not that connected, but you have hands, feet, and you have an open heart and open mind. There is always something you can do to get involved. Like, I really want to impart that today. And so for me, it was like, well, I know a lot of famous people. I know a lot of rich people. I know a lot of what would it look like if we started to like mobilize these folks and like pull these resources so that we can get them directly to the communities who have benefited, who would benefit from it the most? Because the truth is that even when we talk about the prison industrial complex, I'm not going to go into this, but there's also a nonprofit industrial complex, which exploits the narratives of black and brown indigenous folks, trans people. And yet they use our stories to raise donor dollars yet we don't see a single cent of the impact. So they pimp us out for our narratives and then we're still suffering. In fact, dare I even say, it's more beneficial because if you always have a cause you're fighting for and you never really get to the bottom of it, you're able to keep your lights on and keep jobs going and keep that six-figure salary pumped up. And so I didn't want to put more money in the hands of the nonprofit industrial complex. I wanted to put hands Uh, put money in the hands of these grassroots organizations who have always been doing the work because the most vulnerable people continue to do the most vulnerable work. So you are essential was born. We started funding grassroots organizations, working with those um, who have been directly impacted by COVID. But then it hit me, wait a minute. Actually, these people were already suffering before the pandemic even hit. So what they're experiencing is a race war overlapping with, you know, a pandemic. And so that compounded means that white supremacy is meeting its quota much quicker. And what I also realized a moment ago, which I talked about how it seeks to divide and conquer, what would it look like if we built cross-cultural collaborations that yielded generational wealth and a sense of full autonomy for each respective community? That's the goal of liberation. It's being able to take that journey with other communities, making sure that no one is left out. And so it's a lot easier to bridge that gap when you have a multicultural organization that shares the same values, that has the same objective, and that is able to bridge the gap and bring people together in a way that makes us much more powerful and not um, not affected by the gaslighting and the tactics to disrupt these movements. And so when we look at institutions and structures and all of these different things, organizations and companies, it's meant to kind of like keep us in our lane and we're just like puppets on strings. And so we're cutting those strings and we're communicating with one another one-on-one and we're having these meaningful conversations that underscore the humanity in each of us. And it's not making us fight for our dignity or like take turns. I don't know where this came from against scarcity complex. I call it the single slice ideology. Like, okay, tell you what, Jibian, you wait right here. 
I'm going to go and get my dignity and my rights and my, and I promise I will come back for you. And then all of a sudden you look up and you look up in the mansion and I'm up there dancing, you know, like doing my thing. And it's just like, we don't come back for each other because we've become the society of, I got mine, good luck getting yours. You Are Essential is actually trying to erase all of that, even so much so that the reason why most of these organizations can't collaborate and come together is because the federal government's taking the stale crust of funding and throwing it in the middle of the ring and making them scrap for like wild alley cats. And the thing is that we don't have to do that. There's more than enough to go around. And in fact, we stand to gain more by working together. Yes. Um, so a few things. So many of you in the comments are saying great things. I Here's some of the things that I've noticed that I don't live for. And I would love for you to just like think about that. So many people in these comments have said things along the lines of like, you know, not all white people. <laughs> Um, that's kind of what we're talking about. And I just think, you know, one thing that I learned, I love this thing. It's like, knowledge is not facts. Knowledge is context, right? It's understanding context. We must understand context in order to make informed decisions. And we have a context problem. I think that, uh, not, not us, but, you know, so many people, I, uh, well, maybe I have context problems sometimes. Whatever, focus. The point is. Well, not all, I just want to say quickly, not all white people is still trying to distance yourself. I yeah. said earlier, maybe you were someone who came in later in the conversation, but just really quick two-second recap. What I said was that no one is blaming you or accusing you of being a bad person for being born into inherent racism or being born into the system of white supremacy. It only becomes an issue when you refuse the education and refuse to help dismantle it. So that's what it is. When we talk about white supremacy, it is not our mission to destroy every white person in our past. We're trying to destroy the systems that continue to oppress uh, black people, uh, LGBTQ people, brown, indigenous, immigrants, uh, um, disabled, the elderly, all of these people. And so, again, what white supremacy will do is use your guilt and sense of fragility to make you feel victimized and attacked. Because if you feel attacked and never, now you've given yourself permission to disengage. And so the thing is that that disengagement is a privilege because for Black people and for darn sure Black trans women, we don't get that privilege of saying, you know what, I can't do this. This isn't right. This isn't. And not only that, please don't think that racism and transphobia won't directly impact you because let me tell you something about white supremacy, Henty. She will eat her own young. So when we see poor white people even in rural areas, Poor white people have been the biggest weapon of white supremacy. They intentionally starved a faction of their own community just to add a, a barrier against people that would say like, oh, white supremacy is doing this. They're like, well, I'm white and I'm poor. I don't have privilege. I don't have, and it's like, honey, it's because you too can be white and still be a victim of white supremacy. That's how it works. And so when we're talking about these things, please understand, Sugar, whoever asked that question. We're not saying that you're a terrible person and that by saying white, it necessarily means that 
You, but the thing is that you have to divorce yourself from this notion of what it means to be a good person because it's a form of virtue signaling and there is no good person, nor even to the Black people being murdered and whether they did something or didn't do something, does that mean that they deserve to be murdered? Law enforcement are not the judge, jury, and executioner. So again, going back to this notion of what it means to be a good person. When you can remove yourself from that, when you can understand that it's much bigger than you, it's much bigger than me, it's much bigger than all of us, we've inherited this thing. And so if we are truly intentional about making the world a better place, we could be the generation that actually dismantles it and starts to build a much brighter, more beautiful legacy. And that's up to you. And whether you want to continue to feel victimized by the idea that you are being accused of being a racist or whether you choose to embrace the truth that you are part of a racist system that continues to oppress and that it will continue to do what it's always done unless you intervene. <sighs> yes, Queen. That, that was good. I feel like that was good. So I think... This is like one other little baby last bit that I kind of just want to think about for a second. So like, I think one thing in my life that I've learned is that like when dealing with tragedy, when dealing with like something really, really difficult, um, having like some sort of joy filled something for some amount of time is important. And I think that it doesn't mean like you're like, I guess I just feel like right now, like whether you are a, a black person, whether you're a person of color, whether you are an LGBTQ person, and you've been on a some version of a receiving end of oppression, um, but especially if you've been on like every version of it, like I'm, you know, looking at black trans people, I'm looking at people who've, like really been all up in the oppression, or you're a uh, a person who happens to be white, as Amanda Seal or as Amanda Seal says, which I think is a, a great way to think about it, and um, like you do need. Like, because like the self Karen is the one who is like willfully ignorant. We are not looking at it. Um, one thing that I've really gotten into randomly because I think of a mixture of quarantine and needing to exercise some version of new self care is like I kind of got into like gardening. But I realized that this is a privilege to be able to like have the space to buy the soil to like get the seeds to put it in the sun. But that is like it's like a twenty minute thing in the morning that I can like do, and then I feel like all right, I'm going to learn, I'm going to interview, I'm going to book, I'm going to do my thing, you know, like going to going to do the dismantling. And I think that where you just, you need to be aware that you need to earn your self-care and that you, like it. That's what I was saying earlier when I said that self-care is meant to remedy fatigue associated with dismantling these systems around the clock, not as a shield for the uh, spiritually sedentary for the folks that are just standing, they're just rooted in their own false beliefs. You know what I mean? So totally. And really quick, what I love about that is that I love that you mentioned that it, it's something that you do in concert with doing the work, right? Because as Black people, we will never have that moment for self-care if we could only access self-care when things pipe down or if we had to hit full stop because it never, we don't have a pause button. We don't have, it's not like one of those 1985 boom boxes where like you can just press the last button to pause, you know, and it's just like, okay, now it's quiet. Let me think about this. We never get that. We haven't gotten that since the inception of this country. And so 
we have to do those in concert with one another. And I think the opportunity that I want people to also think about, so you have that garden, right? And you're like, yes, I, I get to do this. I have, you know, land to do this. Um, it feels great. I love a green thumb. What would it look like if we started using even our moments of self-care as an opportunity to advocate for Black lives and build up on that Black joy? Because for those of you who've been here the whole time, I said, joy is an act of resistance because oppression is meant to crush you from the inside out. And so if we know that the antithesis of oppression's um, goal is to build up joy and to build resilience and resistance. Sharing your self-care, your methodology of self-care is a way of uplifting Black lives. So what would it look like to have a community garden in some of these neighborhoods that have been disproportionately impacted by state-sponsored violence and terrorism, i.e. the law enforcement and, and all of that? What would it look like if your thing is on anti? Even I talked about self-caring and being like a lip plumping aficionado. What would it look like if you actually went and got homeless women who have been beaten down by this system, who have been survivors, you know, of violence, all these things, and gave them a makeover, helped them get grounded, helped them, um, you know, get into like a job or like a hobby, or you know, you help uh, economically empower them. No matter who you are or what gives you joy, you always have the opportunity to pour that light into somebody else's life. And so that's more than anything what I want to, no one's saying that you should feel bad about wanting those things. We're just asking that you share because I think that we're all tapped into an infinite source. The universe is infinite. And so thinking about this um, storehouse that you have that has everything you could possibly imagine or ever want, you will feel like such an amazing person and be tapped into the universe in a way that you've never been when you're able to learn how to share those moments with someone else because you're also dismantling the notion of scarcity and the way that it's been exacerbated through capitalism, the way that it's been exacerbated, even when we think about most of the world's woes, it comes from a place of fear. And it's always the fear that we will never have enough or that we will never be enough. Mm. Uh, well, I just love you. And I saw this one comment just a second ago that, kind of pisses me off and I want to talk about it, but I also kind of want to end on that note because it's so beautiful. But I guess just in a loving way that I could address it is like, if you so happen to have a, like a feeling in some kind of way about like the term self-caring and it's like, <laughs> on like women or something, it's like, that actually is the white supremacy, honey, because it's your <laughs> to be like, oh, dang, that feels really bad. I feel like I'm being picked on. I'm not going to engage with this because it's making me feel uncomfortable because you shouldn't be putting, no one's putting down women. No. And I'm a woman, trans women are women too, by the way. So it's that thing where like, again, just really short that I just literally gave you the symptoms. I just described the symptoms and said that that is an attempt to distance yourself from the realities of what is going on so that you can absolve yourself of any social responsibility for dismantling systems of anti-Blackness. And so white supremacy will look for ways to feel victimized and oppressed so 
that it can blame the oppressed instead of taking, assuming responsibility and accountability for the ways in which they've been used to serve the oppressor's objectives. And so many self, you know, like a lot of gay men can be self-Karens. Like I have struggled with being- Karen doesn't have a- Yeah, like I've struggled with it. Lots of people struggle with it. And I think that's the important thing is, is that like, we have to be able to have conversations with ourselves that are, because like I, I was asking uh, Stacey Abrams about this, about like, how do you talk about people within your, your side? But it's like, how do we talk to people within our own side, so to speak on the left, when we have difference of opinions on how we're going to go about something. And something that she said that I thought was really important that reminds me of kind of a similar vein of what you're talking about with white supremacy is that she said, you know, what we do a lot of times is we fight about the crumbs. We fight over the crumbs that white supremacy is throwing us instead of talking about why don't we have the cake? Why don't we have a slice of the cake? Like, And that's really precisely how it's meant to work because it's so confusing and it's so layered and we've been pitted against each other in so many different ways. But instead of like, you know, my therapist always says like, you have to lean into the relationship. Like we all have to lean into the relationship like with each other, like everyone. Um, and I think that that's possible, but I just whenever you have that knee-jerk reaction to like, you know, be like, well, you know, I don't really like the way that they're talking about this, or I feel attacked by how they're saying self-caring. And it's also kind of like how Rachel Ray says, and I I love this analogy too, as long as I'm just doling out the analogies. She made this really fierce freezer cake with like vanilla ice cream and like a, like, and like a vanilla cake. But she was like, if you don't like vanilla cake and vanilla ice cream, just replace the flavors and use the technique. So if you feel offended, honey, when you, if you notice yourself feeling offended about something and you're like, wait, am I being offended about crumbs right now? And like distracting from the wider issue that like black. the rest of the cake, ask yourself, if you have crumbs, that means that it came from an actual cake. Where is the rest of the cake? Yes. And yes. so that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to follow those crumbs, not take them and make them stretch and, and live off of them and pass them down. We're trying to follow the crumbs to the actual cake. And that is the gatekeepers and the uh, patriarchal powers that be that are starving all of us. You know what I mean? I just really adore you and your work so much and I cannot wait to see where you continue to soar. I mean, I think that you're thriving right now, but I just, I think that you are just so someone that is, the world is going to know Ashley Marie Preston. I just can't wait for more people to do so. And, uh, yeah. Thank you so much. That was so sweet. And also thank you again for, answering the call to dismantle all of this because the thing is the thing about some people call it allyship some people call it being um an accomplice some people call it being family but the reality is that it's not meant to be easy it's not meant to be comfortable it's not meant to come with a gift card uh, or a ton of followers, or a pat on the back, or a podcast, or it's something that we do because we know that our survival is contingent upon the survival and well-being of one another. And I, again, when we're tapped into that infinite source universe, we understand that. And I think when we look around the world right now and look at all the pain and agony and grief and strife and sickness and all of that has been produced by white supremacy and colonial rule. This need 
to not be satisfied or grateful or fulfilled by everything that you have, but the need to control and own everything. And so when we can break that by opening up our being and ourselves to share light and resources and all of that with other people and one another, we have the capacity to reverse the clock because right now the earth is dying, <laughs> like completely everything we see it, you know, but we can change that. So I want to leave on that note because now that you know that there's something to be hopeful for, there's something for you to still fight for. If you feel that there's nothing, if there's no hope and there's nothing to fight for, then we just lay down in the middle of the road and wait to be steamrolled over. And I think that we still have so much more to achieve and accomplish and celebrate with one another. And I can't wait to do it with you and the girls and the others and the people and the... I just can't think of a better way to say happy pride uh, than that. So happiest pride to you and thank you for everything that you do. And yeah, thank you so much. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. This week, we re-released an Instagram Live conversation recorded in June 2020 with Ashley Marie Preston. You'll find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend, honey, and show them how to subscribe, please. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousWithJVN. Our socials are run and curated by Emily Bosick. Our editor is Andrew Carson, and our transcriptionist is Alita Vuncha. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Gatto, and Emily Bosick.